Hi, how are you doing? It's just gone seven in the evening and the sun is setting on a warm, fine September day. With Scout, I've walked north out of the village, uphill, and the village is in a, a river valley. I've walked up to a plateau of arable farmland with views in all directions. From here, I'm going to watch the sunset and then I'm going to walk back down into my village as the light fades. My name is Melissa Harrison and I'm a novelist and nature writer who lives in rural Suffolk. From now until October the 5th, I'm going to help you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. Welcome to episode 24 of The Stubborn Light of Things. a beautiful evening. The sun is just starting to hit the tops of the trees to the west, and they're silhouetted black against the sky. But around me are stubble fields. These fields were both some kind of pea crop, a legume, I'm not sure what kind, but they, they look golden now, but with stripes of green where some of the, the spilled peas are regrowing. And across the fields, the trees are leaving long shadows. There's a beautiful, huge oak that I've just seen a kestrel fly into. And beyond that, there's a square, monolith, stack of rectangular straw bales. I can see a farm with a Dutch barn, and that's absolutely full of straw bales too. It gives me a nice feeling to see them all safely housed. Scout's here. Come on, good girl. Come here. Good girl. Sit. The sky overhead is completely cloudless. There's the sound of wood pigeons and jackdaws and rooks. Much of this landscape here looks the same as it would have 50, 60, maybe 70 years ago. Although, of course, so much has changed. My guest this week is Porig O'Donnell, who is my dearest friend who I've never met. He is the author of two novels, the Maker of Swans, which came out in 2016, and The House on Vesper Sands from 2018. All writers should have a way with words, and if you don't, you're in the wrong job, something that Porig and I often talk about. But there are some for whom the pleasures of language are rendered 
exquisite. And I'm not sure I've read anyone else who takes joy in words the way that Porrick does. And his books are just a delight. They're hard to describe. They are feats of the imagination, and I recommend them heartily. It's mid-September. I'm in County Wexford, at the house where I write. I came here to record this because it's isolated and quiet, but there are other bonuses too. They've just brought in the winter wheat from the field beyond the garden, and I can see the last of this year's swallows now, flitting with new urgency above the stubble. It will be time for them to leave soon, and they'll need every last morsel they can get for the long journey ahead. There's a sadness in that always, in that departure. Every year, though I know they'll be returning, this small loss feels irreparable. But there are consolations, things I've learned. I live in Wicklow, not far north of here, and I've spent years walking in its woods and wild places. It's not that nature has taught me things, that's not how it works. Nature doesn't provide instruction. But you can learn things for yourself. To be still. To subtract yourself. To pay particular kinds of attention. You learn the obvious things, of course. Like the chronology of wildflowers. From wild garlic in earliest spring through wood anemones and stitchwort to bluebells at last amid the rapture of May. But you learn about light, too. Because it's ordained by the light this order of succession. You get to know its crystalline purity in February, glancing from the new meltwater, its fierce plenitude in high summer, when the days feel inexhaustible and everlasting. But they're not, of course. And now, as the sun traces lowering arcs across the sky, its character is changing again. There's a sadness in that too, isn't there? But it needn't be unbearable. Because you learn other things too. You learn that nature isn't something apart from you. But it's not about you either. And the light isn't even fading. Not really. What's happening is on a much larger scale. A scale that's literally astronomical. The songwriter Björk observed in a beautiful lyric that the earth like the heart, slopes in its seat. And that's what's happening now, that immense turning away. It will turn back again, of course, and the living world will be ready when it does. Already, underneath our feet, materials of spring are being quietly assembled. Sometimes, what looks like faltering is just another form of persistence. I began to falter too, at about this time of year, to feel myself weakening. And when I found out why, that I had multiple sclerosis, a progressive and incurable illness, I knew what it meant. I held on, for as long as I could, to the life I'd made in wild places. I kept walking, for almost ten years, kept stumbling, kept falling. I paid closer attention. I tried to commit it all to memory, to store it up, 
for what was coming. And I can see it all, even now. Every ragged dog rose, every bright filament of gossamer, and the light in September, I can see that too. It's citric and oblique, revealing things in forensic detail. The exquisite venation of beech leaves, the graceful spokes of fading cow parsley. It shows you the architecture of all this beauty. These structures, these memories, are forms of persistence too. And they never fade, never vanish. You carry them with you until the end. made my way down now off the higher ground. It's still light but the sun has disappeared below the horizon and the air feels different very quickly, very suddenly. It feels as though it's got dew in it and there's a smell as though all the plants are exhaling. It's very particular to this time of year, I think. Those whose lives have been touched by serious illness, whether it's their own or someone very close to them, they know something the rest of us don't. That everything we rely on can be taken away at any moment. And that all our plans are built on shifting sand. The rest of us think we know that. We understand it theoretically, but that's not the same as knowing it viscerally, from seeing it in action, upending your life. I imagine that that shift is permanent, even when your health recovers but it's something you never unlearn. We find it so frightening, that possibility, that we indulge in all sorts of magical thinking to ward it off. If I eat clean, if I think positively, if I do my yoga daily, it won't happen to me. We want control over our lives, of course we do. We want a set of rules to follow. But the dark flip side of believing that we have control is blaming those who do fall ill, physically or mentally. Our judgment of them is a way of warding off misfortune. We think, I'm not like that, so it won't happen to me. The other way in which we deal with our fear is by deifying those who are ill. The idea that pain is noble or somehow necessary is repugnant, I think. And the creation of secular saints just makes the rest of us feel less guilty for our great good fortune. 
but it's still others, those who are suffering. You hear people say, oh, I don't know how she does it, as if people have any choice. I'll say this, though. I've got a friend who is charming and clever and funny and interesting and whose life has so far been almost entirely without setback. And despite all their charm and good manners and good intentions, they are the least empathetic person I know. I wouldn't wish ill health or misfortune on anyone. But neither would I wish for an entirely unobstructed life. I've just done a massive double take on my walk because um, there's a little fly agaric mushroom on the path. I've been seeing a few mushrooms since midsummer. We had a bit of rain and it brought some up, but it's the first fly agaric I've seen this year. And that's the one that really looks like a um, Alice in Wonderland magic mushroom. It's got the red top with the white dots and it's been nibbled. And there are little tiny tooth marks all the way around the edge. <laughs> so a vole, perhaps, um, or a wood mouse. The two small teeth for squirrel. Anyway, something's really been at it. I hope they're not having a bad trip. <laughs> a couple of years ago, my friend Nan gave me a very precious thing which still sits on my writing desk today. And I wrote about it in my Times Nature Notebook for September 2018. Knowing my interests, a neighbour has brought me as a gift a lovely little book once owned by her mother. Called Every Day in the Country, it was written by one Harrison Weir, best known as a watercolourist, cat fancier and pigeon and poultry expert, and published in 1883. The left-hand pages inform the reader what they may expect to observe in the countryside on each and every day of the year, with space on the right, largely untaken in my copy, for their own notes and records. So on the 11th of January we learn that earthworms lie out, while on the 3rd of July Chaffinch's song ceases, and on the 16th of August barley cut. The entry for today, the 22nd of September, reads... Heath in flower, great plovers assemble, wood pigeons flock, beech nuts fall. It is remarkably and charmingly precise. It's also a testament to both change and loss, not only of species, elm trees, great bustards, corn crakes, or even abundance, but also of cultural traditions, common knowledge and an assumption of cyclical regularity in regard to the natural world. Of course, Weir doesn't really expect readers to record each instance on the exact day he notes it. But 135 years ago, the seasons certainly arrived with more regularity, weather patterns were more predictable, up to a point, 
and the effects of both climate change and the intensification of agriculture were a long way off. There's something hypnotic about flicking through the pages with their confident invocations of the changeless seasonality of insects, birds, fish and flowers. It is, at an atavistic level, deeply comforting, until one shuts the book. Today, the People's Walk for Wildlife will take place in our capital city, a way for growing numbers of people who realise what's happening to the natural world to come together and be visible. It's not too late to change our relationship with nature for the better. It's not too late to win back what we've lost. Can you hear that very characteristic pheasant going to bed sound? And occasionally pheasant waking up in the morning sound too. It's the time of year when lots and lots have been released because shooting starts on October the 1st. So the countryside around me at the moment is full of very confused young pheasants who don't really know how to fend for themselves. And then lots of wily older ones as well who've done this all before. It's amazing how quickly the air gets cold in September without the sun to warm it. I can feel the temperature dropping almost by the minute. sky overhead is now a deep blue, although there's still a lot of light towards the west. The crickets are starting to chirp. On our way here, Scout and I walked through a field of maize. It must have been about 10 foot high. It was quite odd to walk through. I'm not going to take that route back, not with the light fading. Gilbert White's house in Selborne, The Wakes, is open to the public again. And I highly recommend a visit. You can find out more at gilbertwhiteshouse.org.uk. September the 14th, 1772. Oats rot as they lie, a very poor, scanty crop. Little barley cut, but dead ripe. September the 14th, 1773. Young swallows come out, barley and oats housed, some wheat out still. September the 14th, 1774. Ring oozles feed on our whores, and yew berries in the autumn, and ivy berries in the spring. September the 14th, 1777. Black cluster grapes begin to turn colour. A tremendous and awful earthquake at Manchester, and the district round. The earthquake happened a little before 11 o'clock in the forenoon, when many of the inhabitants were gathered in their respective places of worship. 
September the 14th, 1781, Timothy the tortoise, dull and torpid. September the 14th, 1784. The heats are so great and the night so sultry that we spoil joints of meat in spite all the care that can be taken. September the 14th, 1785. Turned the horses into the great meadow. There is a vast aftergrass, more than when the meadow was mowed in the summer. September the 14th, 1788. The gale snapped off a large bough from my pear tree, which is heavily laden with fruit. September the 14th, 1791. Hop picking goes on without the least interruption. Stone curlews cry late in the evenings. The congregating flocks of hirundines on the church and tower are very beautiful and amusing. When they fly off altogether from the roof, on any alarm, they quite swarm in the air. But they soon settle in heaps, and preening their feathers and lifting up their wings to admit the sun seem highly to enjoy the warm situation. Thus they spend the heat of the day preparing for their emigration and, as it were, consulting when and where they are to go. The flight about the church seems to consist chiefly of house martins, about 400 in number, but there are other places of rendezvous about the village frequented at the same time. The swallows seem to delight more in holding their assemblies on trees. September the 14th, 1792. From London, three gallons of French brandy and two gallons of Jamaica rum. Robin has such a sweet, silvery, unresolved song. I always think it sounds like water dripping from trees. At this time of year, it takes on such a wistful note. I'm taking a narrow, winding, single-track lane, which leads down and into my village. And I've got Scout back on the lead, just in case of cars. The robins are going to bed. And the first bat has just flickered past my head. It's the point in the evening when the house lights start coming on. The windows start winking yellow. Which serves to emphasise the failing light. This week's poem is by the poet teacher, mentor, editor and publisher Jane Kamane from her collection Assembly Lines, which is published by Blood Axe. And it's a quiet invitation to celebrate the extraordinary fact of us being here at all. Poem in which a small dog looks into the sun by Jane Kamane. Poem in which a small dog looks into the sun and half closes her amber eyes 
as if everything's replete on this back doorstep, small garden, nondescript town, where the washing waves are shadows from the line. The year is faltering on the slack rope of seasons. Clematis and jasmine twine the breeze flowerless, sound carrying the rumble roar of mainline and freight high above us. September's last blue-vaulted ceiling. And we together worship outdoors beneath it, this small domestic god and I, for the warmth on our bones, for needing nothing more than this sun, this garden. There is so much that could be said about the commonplace miracle of being here in this moment. Scout and I are really close to home now, just outside the village. We can see the yellow lights of the houses winking, maybe only five minutes walk away. I love this time of day. I think I've mentioned before, it's the time at which it's easiest to imagine that the world is still unharmed. And there, as the first tawny owls start to call, and the evening star, Venus, comes out in the night sky. You can pretend, still, that everything's going to be okay. If you subscribe to the Gaia theory, you believe that the Earth is a single living organism and that all of the species on it, like all of the species that inhabit us as a human body, all of the fungi and bacteria and our microbiome, in which case the organism that is the Earth is sick and we don't know how it's going to turn out. I once asked a very wise friend of mine, much wiser than I am, how to deal with that knowledge, what I should do, whether I could, (laughs) whether I could contribute, whether I could make a difference, how much of my life I had to give up. And she said, You do what you would do for anyone you love that was sick. You love them. You just love them. And so now as the light fades, that's what I'm doing. And that's what you can do too. There is so much still to love. For now, I'm going to take Scout home, put her to bed, watch a bit of rubbish telly and sleep. And I'll see you all next week. <laughs>